0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we chat about all things foreign affairs with Stephanie Carvin, Associate Professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Doug Ford hasn't even named his new cabinet yet, but some big challenges looming, especially in the field of education and childcare. We'll get into that. And are we in a bullish market or a bear market? It does matter to each and every one of us. It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts... Now, today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, today, some concern right now about uh, a party that was held uh, by the Russian embassy. Maybe is the best way to put it, uh, and uh, apparently, a member of the staff of the uh, foreign office actually went to this thing, which is a no-no uh, in, in diplomatic circles because we're supposed to be punishing Russia uh, because of what they're doing in Ukraine these days. That and uh, some other news uh, from the Foreign Affairs Department is uh, going to start us off this morning. And uh, to do all of this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Stephanie Carvin. Stephanie is an associate professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Uh, Stephanie, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today.
1: Hey, I always love being on the
0: show. Listen, I, I I do want to touch on the uh, the Indo Pacific Advisory Committee because that's a big deal too. Uh, but what about this uh, this diplomatic kerfuffle here with a, a senior department official attending a party at the Russian embassy? Um, I, I I don't even know if, if Minister Julie was around when this happened because I know she went to California at least for a little while with the Prime Minister last week. Uh, but explain to us what, exactly what's going on and, and why somebody's wrist should be slapped here because they're making a big deal about it in question period.
1: I mean, wrist slapping is one word for it. Um, I have (laughs) other other descriptions. Uh, Yeah, I mean, you know, Canada has taken a very strong stance against Ukraine, and... um, You know, I actually do think maybe I'm a little different here from some other people, but, you know, I'm a nerdy professor and I get to be. But I actually think it is important to keep relations open with Russia, especially during a crisis, right? Like you want those channels of communication open. We want to be able to explain to Russian diplomats exactly what we want from Russia, and we should be putting pressure on them as well. So I have no problem with the idea that we are you know, like, that that we're continuing some kind of level of formal conversation. Diplomacy isn't about friendship. Diplomacy is a tool, and we have to think of it that way. Now, keeping that principle in mind, that diplomacy isn't friendship, the idea that you would go to a day celebrating Russia who has been involved in not just uh, what is almost certainly an illegal Im- invasion, but also what appears to be some of the, the worst war crimes we've seen in years. Uh, to go to like that that National Day celebration is just so wrong, <laughs> I think is, is is wrong morally, but I think also it sends the wrong message politically, right, like, look, we're willing to keep talking to you because we need to solve this when we want you to stop your invasion, but this idea that we're going to celebrate you I think is is not not the message we should have been sending so it's it's a complete disaster on pretty much every level
0: Yasmin Heinbecker is global affairs deputy chief protocol was involved in this. Uh, apparently, Minister Jolie didn't know anything about this until she read about it in the Globe and Mail the other day. Uh, but as she mentioned yesterday in question period, the buck stops there. She's the minister. She's got to look after this. And and I see your point too, Stephanie. And I I, I don't disagree with you. You've got to have some communication, even in a situation like this where lives are being lost. Uh, but this was not a diplomatic mission. This was uh, cocktails no. and canapes, really. And uh, you know that's 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 it's apples and oranges, really, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is. And I remember, well, I was asked to comment for that Global Mail story and, uh, you know, I thought, well, okay, am I just being sensitive here too? And sometimes I like to do what I call the Oshawa test, where I go to my parents and I say, you know, <laughs> Canada is true. I um, go <laughs> to my parents and I said, you know, uh, I, th- I think I think someone went to the Russia day party and my parents just looked at me and they're like, what? <laughs> Were, they were just so shocked and like you know um, I had a I had a great 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 uh, professor at Queen's University named Joel Sikolsky and he said you know sometimes the know nothings know something and I, I think that you know if my parents can recognize how dumb this is like why wasn't this seen at gack like what like what levels of uh, uh, like I can't imagine the mind somersaults that were going through people's brains to to think that this is something that should be done or the fact that I don't know maybe this was in someone's Google calendar and they just never took it out I have no idea what happened Um, but if i was a minister i would also be questioning like like the kinds of advice i'm getting from from my staff if they thought this was a good idea if they thought this was something acceptable you know do do i need to be looking at the advice i'm getting Um, because this was this is i mean it's just so such a patently obvious dumb thing to do Um, and i i I don't want to put it that way i would i would actually say you know to minister julie's credit i think she has actually perform better than expectations. I don't, you know, it sounds maybe cruel, but I, I'm not sure how high expectations were. Until now, the, the, the office has been running okay, I guess. Um, and it's just been kind of in the last uh, week or two, and we can we can talk about that. But, um, you know, it, it is it is unfortunate. But if I was the minister, uh, she's right, the buck stops with her. And she should be looking at, you know, what advice am I getting? Who am I getting it from? And uh, do I need to make some, some personnel changes um, now?
0: Which it happens from time to time, especially when somebody takes over a ministry like that. And I, and I agree with your assessment. I think, you know, there's been a couple of stumbles in the last couple of days. But I think a lot of people have been surprisingly impressed by the way she's acted. But here's the thing. It's all about communication, isn't it? I mean, even, yes. if, 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 even if you're, uh, you know, uh, idea of maybe, maybe it's just something that never got erased. It was up there for, first of all, that this has been going on for quite some time. But even if, oh, gee, I got to do this on set. Maybe I should check about if that's still a go. Uh, you know, a phone call up the line there wouldn't have been a, a, a bad idea. But we're told now that, uh, that the minister's office was informed even before the party that uh, Ms. Heinbecker was going to be attending this thing. Somebody should have thrown up a stop sign and they didn't.
1: Yeah, I know. And this is where I'm kind of sitting there going, like, you know, I, I just I would love to know the process by which this was this happened. Like I said, like, did someone just leave this in their calendar? Did someone um you know did they get permission to go no i mean like i don't want the opposite to happen i don't want the minister to sit there and justify every single time someone goes to an event because there's lots of events around ottawa all the time because it's you know the nation's capital um there's lots of diplomacy going on and i don't want the minister having to sit and do like a tick box every time that's not the solution either but what you need to ensure is that you have good people around you who who can sense these things and and have a sense for it i mean did did the minister need to actually explain to her staff we will not be attending Russian parties for the foreseeable future or at least while this war is going on and I think that's that's the that's the reality of it. So I don't know how huh. uh, I mean like I said I would be I would very much be be trying to figure out how this happened and then think about some of the advice that I was getting in order to you know make sure that I you know ministers really do depend on advice. They can't keep their eyeball on every single thing that's happening in their departments. They need good people around them. And if you're not, if you have people that that you know struggle with a decision like this, I think you really do need to uh, maybe rethink <laughs> some of your personnel. I, I guess the other thing that I'm not clear on in the in the in the story was that when they talked about her office, I wasn't sure if it was her political staff or if it was her like actual kind of minister staff. So that was the other thing that that I was wondering. But either way, that's not very good at all. like that this decision just simply should not have been made.
0: Is this a story with legs or is this going to die off in a couple of days? I mean, the opposition parties, as we mentioned, I got to make a big deal of this. But, I mean, you know, they don't make a big deal if you're wearing the wrong kind of shoes with the outfit you're on. I mean, but they they jump at everything and cling to it. But is it the sort of thing that's going to resonate, especially given the fact that they're probably going on their holiday, their Christmas holiday, their summer holiday. And then matter about just a few days now
1: well i think it is something that could like i said not maybe not necessarily have legs forever but something that the opposition can bring up as it's as it's consistently going uh through the summer i would say that for the most part foreign policy hasn't really played a big role for example in the conservative leadership race um that's normal normally we focus on on kind of more domestic issues so i'm not sure in that sense canadians don't tend to care that much about about foreign policy. So this may just be more held up more of an example of kind of either liberal incompetence or liberal, liberal corruption or something like that, something we often hear from the Conservatives. but um, I think the minister taking responsibility for the decision is is important. and she said, yes, the buck stops here. this is my fault. this is the office. I think that was a good important step. It's just going to be what does she do now in the future ab- about
0: these issues? Well, changing the channel is always a good political move. Uh, let's talk about the uh, Indo-Pacific Advisory Committee. Uh, the other controversy.
2: <laughs> there you go.
0: Uh, there's some pretty big names here. I mean, Pierre Pettigrew, we know Frank McKenna, of course, the former premier and ambassador, uh, and a number of, including Ronna Ambrose. Uh, so, I guess that makes it bipartisan. The purpose of this, and 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 why they think it's important.
1: You know, I don't know. Um, I guess in some ways, I mean, one of the things that is lacking at Global Affairs, and not just Global Affairs, I would say across the government, is industry experience, right? People tend in Canada to enter into the government at a very young age, in their 20s and 30s, and then uh, spend the rest of their careers there. And that's fine. I mean, a lot of us, you know, people enter the private sector and spend their careers there too. But this means that they don't necessarily understand the perspective of business. Um, They don't necessarily understand the perspective of, of you know how you know you can negotiate a trade agreement, but you don't necessarily then have to live by those rules. So I think it is important to bring in people with outside perspectives, and those three people that you just named. Um, McKenna Ambrose and Pettigrew, they, they've they worked um, in, in both government and in business, and I think that they can speak those two languages. So I think that's a good thing, right? Because so much of our, our relationship with, um, you know, if we, if we look at the Indo-Pacific is about business, and I think that's a good thing. However, there, there's been some concerns raised about this. So, Um, One of the things about global affairs is that it does seem to be consistently at war with itself. And we just had a conversation about (laughs) how Russia, um, you know, this Russian party and why that decision was made. Um, The fact is that you have these issues with regards to you know China. And you seem to have this kind of legacy group of diplomats who still t- take a very positive view of China. You can think of the 1990s, Jean Chrétien going to China, opening up China to Canada, and, and that was a big team in Canada. I remember seeing the big newspaper headlines about that growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other hand, you have kind of, I think, a, a newer generation of diplomat that's coming in and kind of seeing what China is doing, the aggression and things like this. And so I think there's a dispute within probably the government itself, not just global affairs, to be fair, about how do you handle a rising power like China? Do we try to, you know, take a more sympathetic view and understand them and continue to do business or do we cut ourselves off entirely, right? Because that is seems to be the two options. So I think there's some concerns that the people on this panel are going to tend to be much More pro China, pro business than perhaps um, what is rumored to have been in our much fabled, not yet existing Indo Pacific strategy. Um, And so, you know, we have seen groups like Alliance Canada Hong Kong come out and speak about that and say, look, there's no representation here from groups that have been um, attacked by China or um, are are part of, say, the Uyghur repression or things like this. There's no civil society kind of perspective on this. And I think that's a very valid criticism. And I do think, you know, if we haven't learned our lesson in the past four years with regards to China, I mean, what are we even doing? So, yeah, so there's a lot going on there um, with regards to that panel. It's not clear to me at the end of the day just how much influence a, a private sector business panel will ultimately have on government decision making but I don't think we should underplay it either
0: uh, you could throw Dominic Barton's name in there too I guess uh, since yeah the ambassador <laughs> it sure to can China at one point uh, but we haven't had a whole lot with ambassadors to that country in the last little while either so I, I don't know what they're supposed to do here but I because I've heard the same criticism so, seen some of it on social media over the last couple of days too is uh, you know what what do you what are the expectations here and, and, and what's the mindset going into this right now? Is it, is it to address some of the concerns or is it simply to improve trade relations? Because uh, you can't simply pretend nothing else is going on there. And, and I think that's one of the criticisms this government's received over the last number of years is, is you've got to open your eyes to the whole picture here. Uh, and not just say, well, we don't want to get these guys ticked off because there could be, you know, economic ramifications. Uh, You know, so if two people leave a a Winnipeg uh, lab and and they seem to have taken some stuff with them to go back and talk about the research they're doing here, that's okay. Uh, You know, we'll just kind of sweep that under the carpet. And if, you know, the the Chinese government or Chinese companies are putting millions and millions of dollars into R&D and universities, uh, but but claiming the intellectual property, Uh, well, we'll talk about that somewhere down the road. I mean, what we are looking for here and i guess a lot of people stephanie are looking for is some positive action here and, and a positive response from the government to say look at we know about this is, and this is going to have an impact on our relations and you don't hear much of that from ottawa
1: no, Canada is really bad at making decisions, especially in the area of foreign policy, right? We seem to want everything. We don't like to make choices. And it seemed, you know, last year when we heard about this Indo-Pacific strategy, it seemed like, wow, we're finally going to make some hard choices. This is going to be good. Um, you know, whatever, whatever it is. But, like, right now, we seem to want both, like, really good trade relations with China, but also then to... Want to expand out to the other regions. There's talk about, you know, Canada wanting to join other kind of alliances in the region. So, you know, it doesn't, it's, it's just a complete incoherent mess. Like, what is it that we're trying to get out of this relationship with, with, with China? And so it's like, I was really happy we're even just going to make some choices. And then, you know, uh, of course, the uh, U- Ukraine, um, war happened and it kind of took some of the oxygen out of that and now you do wonder if this new panel is being set up to kind of maybe counteract some of the decisions that were being actually made in this indo-pacific strategy which again hasn't been released and i don't understand why that is apparently it's there apparently it's good to go maybe they want to make sure that it's it's staffed up and the initiatives are are thought out before it comes out but i mean Every other country has a foreign policy. Like, we're the only G7 that doesn't have a, you know, country that doesn't have a foreign policy. It's ridiculous. And it's not good because if you can't set out what your foreign policy priorities actually are, it's hard for the rest of government, like, to, to, Actually, set an agenda. I mean, we may think in terms of global affairs, but also, you know, you think of like innovation, science, and economic development, what used to be called Industry Canada. They just had to make a big decision about Huawei, right? And mm-hmm. having a foreign policy. That gives us some idea about where our trajectory is with regards to our relationship with China. May have been helpful in making that decision. Maybe it wouldn't have taken four years for us to actually uh, uh, put that forward. So, I mean, I, I think the, the the real issue here is just the inability of this government to make some very hard choices. Uh, it, it's this is something they don't need legislation for. They don't need the Conservatives for. They don't need the NDP for. They just need to decide, and they don't seem to be either able or willing to do that. And um, you know the final point I'll add here is you know I, today I read on uh, in the news that you know Joe Biden is going to Saudi Arabia after you know the the fuss over killing uh, journalists and things like this and and I just kind of keep thinking like why is it that democracies are consistently willing to kind of throw their values under a truck
0: well, for some kind of question. short-term game?
1: Maybe that's another maybe that's another rant I can that's, have on yeah your we're situation. just about out of time here but uh, <laughs> I'm sorry you're recently- yelling. <laughs>
0: I know, I know. It's, a, it's a, when you get it's in a therapy. groove. You know? but, the, but the thing here is, I mean, using the Huawei as, an, as a barometer, I don't hold your breath waiting for any clarity on this. Uh, Stephanie, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it.
1: Hey, let's do it again soon.
0: You betcha. Professor Stephanie Carvin at uh, Carleton University. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The government just got really elected and, you know, huge victory. And there's a, you know, the glow of that victory, I guess, is still with an awful lot of the folks uh, within the PC party in Ontario. Uh, but they got to roll up their sleeves and get to work uh, right away uh, because uh, there is a crisis looming if they don't act and act properly uh, very quickly. What has happened here is the uh, education workers, the teachers, etc., etc., have actually uh, filed a motion. Uh, that basically says that it's a notion of intent is what it's called. And it's uh, basically to uh, get the government to the table to begin negotiations uh, within the next 15 days, give them some dates so they can sit down and talk about this and try to get all these issues settled, hopefully before the school year next September. The government's kind of already said we can't do that because we don't even know who the minister is going to be, et cetera, et cetera. That's not good news uh, because we already know. Uh, that there can be a lot of problems between uh, this government and uh, education workers and teachers. Uh, there's so many different problems going on and so many issues to be dealt with here. So we wanted to bring uh, Karen Littlewood into the conversation. Karen, of course, is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Uh, Karen, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today.
2: Good morning, Bill. It's good to be back.
0: Well, it, I wish it was under happier circumstances. I'd love to just, you know, pick up the and find out, hey, you know, everything's settled. They They found some agreements. But as I mentioned in my commentary this morning, the uh, the relationship between this government and, and, and teachers has been anywhere from acrimonious to confrontational. Uh, and uh, I don't know if it's going to get better anytime soon. Uh, as you mentioned uh, in your comments yesterday, uh, you know, when they delivered their budget speech just before the writ the came down for the election. Uh, I don't know how many times they mentioned education once or twice, maybe. Uh, so mm-hmm. it doesn't seem to be much of a priority or maybe they don't think there's a problem here. What, what, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, the relationship is an interesting conversation. Uh, Highways are mentioned over 150 times, but education barely at all yet. The day after the election, Mr. Ford said how much he loves teachers. I'd like to remind Mr. Ford that we have education workers too, um, especially in OSSTF, a third of our members are secretaries, custodians, speech-language pathologists, it's its a whole system, so I hope he loves all of us equally, but but I also hope that that means that maybe there'll be a change of approach. In 2019, we were told basically that a quarter of the high school teachers would be cut from the system, and that was done in a press release. We are entering into bargaining, and you know, just to calm people's nerves, this is not unusual. It's actually quite typical when our collective agreement is going to expire on August 31st that, In the period of time before, and it was actually June 2nd, the same as election day, we can serve notice to bargain. We didn't do it on that particular day. We waited until we had our brief approved by our presidents and chief negotiators. But this is regular timelines that we're following right now. So we're hoping that the government will say, "Yep, once we have a minister of education, let's get to the table and talk.
0: But they didn't quite say that. They just said, well, we can't accommodate this within 15 days, which, again, it makes me wonder about the priority. But, you know, when the the, the pandemic started, Karen, a couple of years ago, uh, and they had to announce their their back-to-school plan, and uh, we all know how that went. Not well. There's a spoiler alert for everybody. Uh, But they waited until the end of August to make the announcement. I mean, you know, if I can put it in the education metaphor, it's like, you know, when I was a student. I mean, I always waited until Sunday night to do my homework. Well, you know, it, you wait to the last minute and it, it doesn't go well most of the time. Uh, they should be starting now. And, and I know that that's what your your union and your workers and, and your members were saying. Why can't we get this started? And they kept putting it off and putting it off. And then they announced their plans and it was horrendous. Uh, you know, nobody was happy with it. And, and that's what just adds to the confrontation. I mean, why can't they learn from what they have done or not done, as the case might be?
2: Yeah, well, I will, I will repeat that, you know, we've asked them over and over to be proactive as opposed to reactive and in the summer of 2020, you're right, it was right around Labor Day weekend that we found out what the plan would be. Last year wasn't much of an improvement, it was the August long weekend and the plan was only 35 pages long and had a lot of to be announced, to be determined. The way that you show that you respect the students of the province is to respect the people working in the province and to acknowledge that we are professionals and it takes more than 24 hours to to prepare for a course, to prepare for what students are going to need so that we can have them be successful. Um, priorities, if they're going to be highways, sure, we probably need ways to travel around, but don't we need people who are going to be the taxpayers of the future who are going to be educated in a strong system, in a world-class system? Um, you know, I, I think we have to be asking where the priorities are, but again, we're ready and willing and able to bargain once they name an education minister and they are Ready to come to the table with some proposals,
0: but that's a long list. I mean, you know, let's be practical <laughs> about this. I mean, we we can talk about classroom sizes. We can talk about uh, online learning as opposed to in classroom yeah. learning, uh, we can talk about the 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 brooks and mortar in which teachers and, and students have to exist and work. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done on that. Uh, there's, uh, and we haven't even talked about wages, benefits, and things of that nature, uh, which okay. is going to be another issue. That there's a lot going on here.
2: Yeah, well, we've been restricted under Bill 124 for the past three years to a 1% increase. That's for anybody in the public sector. In the education system and the publicly funded schools in Ontario, we're coming to the end of that three-year period. I certainly hope that the Ford government doesn't say, you know, we're recovering from a pandemic, we're going to need to continue with that. It's just really not acceptable. Some of our workers earn just over minimum wage, those who are the education workers. And to have a 1% raise doesn't do anything to pay for $2 a a litre of gas and you know food costs and child care and and all of those things are the workers in education are also the taxpayers of the province and we try to make sure that we are contributing to the students to the future of the province we're going to do whatever we can but we need a little bit of help with that and we need a, a government that's going to come with some reasonable suggestions
0: Karen, we know that uh, because of that restriction on, on salaries and, and benefits and, and any increases at one percent, uh, a lot of people in the healthcare profession just threw their hands up and said, that's it, I'm out of here. Uh, and there are shortages. Uh, what are your members doing? How are they responding to this? I mean, it's been pretty tough for all of us over the last couple of years. And if, uh, if I, I think they have every right to say, look, at it, we've got to have a better situation here. And we don't know what that's yeah. going to be just yet.
2: Yeah, no, it's been the same in education we have, uh, you know, in the first year of the pandemic, people kind of held off and said, I, I think I'll wait until I retire. It's not even that right now. It's people leaving the professional together, people coming in. Um, trying to get a job and then saying, you know, I just can't stay here. People who've been working in education for 20 plus years saying there must be something else. I'm not feeling that I'm respected. I'm not feeling that the students are being respected. We have a really challenging time filling uh, absences right now. So somebody was is off and they're sick, they have COVID. Um, they, they just are, are at their wits end and can, are, cannot be at work. There isn't necessarily someone to come in to fill in for them. The the premier used a clause in the Education Act that allowed anybody with um, a high school diploma to come in to cover a class. Well, I've said it before, we don't have vending machines that pop out lessons for people to become teacher on the spot. There's a lot of training that goes into that. I'd like to know that the educational assistant is trained and knows what they're doing with the students who have some really significant needs. Are we doing all of that? Are we making sure there are enough people in the building? There are 79 people in the Trillium Lakelands District School Board. They're CUPE members, but they're being laid off. So what's happening there? Is this going to be the way forward? We need to be funding education, not breaking it down.
0: Just put a minute or so left here. We talked about that acrimonious relationship over the last number of years uh, with this government and, and teachers. We don't know who the uh, education minister is going to be. It's been uh, Stephen Lecce, of course, over the last uh, four years uh, of this administration. Would a change help here, uh, a, a different face at the bargaining table, or, or does it much matter?
2: What will change is when the Ford government puts out a mandate that says, let's show that we're respecting the students of the province. Let's respect the workers of the province. Let's make sure that we can have something that's going to be helping to rebuild Ontario. It it doesn't really matter who it is. What matters is the intent that they have and what they'd like to do with education. And if they could view it as an investment, I think we would all be in a very different place.
0: Well, I mean, he reached out uh, to the trade unions and, and, and to the auto yeah. workers, and uh, much to the surprise of an awful lot of people in this province. It was, yeah. Is there an attitude of, hey, what about us?
2: Yeah, I, I'm here. You want to call? It's uh, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not that hard to find. I, I'm oh, I think they have yeah. your number. <laughs> yeah, I think they have my number, too. I, I think it would be great. Like, why don't we say this is where we're headed? We, un, we, you, you know, you always understand in any negotiation, you're not going to get everything you, you're asking for. But there is a reasonable way forward, and there's a way that's best for the students of the province. I keep saying it again and again. These are the future taxpayers of the province. We need to make sure that they are educated, they're supported, that they have their needs supported, especially given the challenges they've had over the last two years.
0: Exactly. Karen, let's stay in touch as this uh, evolves over the next little while. Thanks so much for this today. For sure. You know where to find
2: me, Bill. <laughs>
0: you betcha. Okay. I'll pass the message on to the minister, too. Thank uh, you. Karen okay. Littlewood, of course, president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, some concern on Wall Street and uh, certainly on Bay Street and uh, this side of the border, too, But what's happening in the economic picture. Uh, The S&P 500 faces first bear market since the pandemic plunge as stocks get slammed. So what's this mean to you and to me? Well, let's talk about that. And to do that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Moshe Land. He is the uh, uh, senior economics lecturer at Concordia University. Uh, Moshe, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today.
3: Oh, my pleasure.
0: Uh, Is it time to panic?
3: (laughs) Um... No, no. I, I, You know what? I, I I like when we have these standardized sort of uh, definitions for what exactly a bear market is, right? So yeah. if the stock market had only fallen 19.99%, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation right now, right? But once it falls more than 20% from its peak, this is a bear market. This is the end of the world. Um, I, I, I don't think that it's panic time yet. But of course... Uh, you know, if you're finding that you've lost 20% of your, your wealth, uh, yeah, maybe maybe you should be concerned. But uh, I, I don't think that this is the type of thing that uh, as a big economy we should be worrying about just quite yet.
0: I, an economics professor years and years ago told me the two main rules here is uh, uh, for every action there's going to be a reaction in, in the markets. And he says markets always tend to return to mean to level uh, over time. Uh, I guess the operative phrase there, what, what do you mean by overtime? How much time? What's going on here?
3: Yeah, I, you know, I, I think part of the problem is that the value of shares was overpriced uh, to begin with, right? That we've seen these unbelievable increases in profits over the last couple of decades uh, that haven't necessarily been justified by what we would say are economic fundamentals, right? That there's a lot of just speculation that, um the the good times would roll on and on and even during the pandemic we were seeing these bizarre outcomes that companies were seeing their profits go up when there was no economic activity going on so part of it was that investors were just being driven by what Keynes famously called animal spirits and i think now what's happening is that people are realizing that okay maybe there actually are some real issues out there in the economy and those share valuations weren't justified. And so I you you use the idea of mean reversion. I think what's happening here is that shares are just returning to what they should have been priced at all along. We just got a little too caught up in in excitement.
0: That's human nature though, isn't it? I mean, if it's if you're on a roll and things are going well for so long, all of a sudden you start to think, hey, that's the new normal. <laughs> and then and as you said just said history shows it no it's not. Uh, there will be a reaction to that.
3: Yeah, and it's a lot more pronounced now, too, because, uh, you know, we, we have a generation that's being driven almost by this fear of missing out, right? Like, uh, I, I think you and I were talking, gosh, is it two years ago now, when we were looking at things like GameStop shares that were, you know, wildly above what the value of that business model suggested. And it was just that people were buying the share merely because their friends were buying the share and they felt like they were missing out on something up until maybe a few months ago, we would have been saying the same sort of idea behind buying uh, Bitcoin, it, it's not that there was a business model, mer- b- business model there that justified those valuations. It was just that I don't want to be the only sucker that's not buying Bitcoin when everybody else around me is talking about their gains. So I think that's kind of accentuated some of this uh, volatility that would exist within the market. And again, it's just somebody eventually realizes that, wait a second, this has got to stop. And then when they pull the plug, again, everybody just kind of jumps with them.
0: It's the reaction to this, I guess, that's got some people concerned, and and I guess there's two parts of it, probably more, but we'll maybe we'll just focus on two. Uh, one is how we, you, and I, the average person, uh, will react to what's going on right now. Higher prices, uh, inflation, stagflation, in some cases, is why well, I want more money. I, I'm going to go to my boss, and I want to raise. Uh, and and I know that the story on today said you know, a lot of the unions uh, contracts over the last couple of months, especially have had significant increases. I mean, it's usually been 1.5, 1%, whatever it is. And it, in many of them, it's over 3% now. But once, if wages are going to go up more, that means prices are going to go up. And that's only going to make this situation worse, isn't it?
3: So that's one possible outcome. The other possible outcome, which could be the thing that's spooking the markets to some extent, is that if you can't pass that cost increase on in the form of higher prices, then the only other place that that's going to be absorbed is in lower profits. And so one of the spillover effects then of higher inflation, if it's leading people to go demand higher wages to try and keep up then firms might be saying that, all right, this is going to generate profit warnings. And so this is exactly one of the things that, again, you and I spoke about maybe now a few months ago, which was the advice that I was trying to give at the time was for people to keep their their level-headedness, right? That inflation stinks. It's not a good thing. Uh, You want to try and get that extra wage increase, of course, to keep pace. But if you're doing that, there is going to be that counter-reaction. And and we're seeing it now where uh, firms are realizing that, If they're operating in competitive markets, they don't have the ability to pass those price increases on, uh, or at least not fully, and and then it's going to show up at lower bottom lines, and that's going to wipe out a huge amount of wealth.
0: And the other element uh, is uh, when I talk about how people are responding to this, uh, what the banks are doing, Bank of Canada, and of course the Federal Reserve, we're experiencing some uncomfortable interest rate hikes, I guess, as one of my buddies mentioned to him over the weekend. Uh, and the, the rumor out of Ottawa today is that uh, they're gonna accelerate that now because of what's going on with the markets and our response to that. And, and uh, you know, you told us that weeks ago, that yeah that's that's part of the inflation that's that's part of the cure you know that's when the doctor orders we you've got to do this you got to raise interest rates to slow down what's going on here uh but that can be precarious too uh because if you start to do that too quickly you push us into a recession don't you
3: yeah and i i I ultimately think that is where we're going to go and it's not going to be the bank of canada's fault it's going to be partly global circumstances beyond our control and it's also going to be uh, our excessive indebtedness that came about because of a extended period of low interest rates and a lot of government goodies that were uh, being handed out during during COVID. But you know the the idea that interest rates are going to go up aggressively, I, I think that again level headedness is of the order here. Let's not forget that where interest rates sit right now is still below where they were before COVID. So we haven't even gotten back to a level where we were three years ago. Uh, If they want to increase it, they're merely trying to increase it because inflation now is almost triple where it was three years ago. So in terms of interest rates are below where they were, but inflation is much higher than it was. Bank of Canada is saying, look, I think everybody should understand. We have to increase interest rates. And I think maybe what they're doing is putting out a little bit of a trial balloon and maybe a little bit of a scare tactic to society saying, You've got a short period of time here where if you can adjust some of your spending, that might help take some of the inflationary pressure out, and we might not have to move quite as aggressively uh, at the next move in July.
0: But what, what about personal debt and, and, you know, accumulated debt? I mean, you know, because we've been getting this warning for years. You know, when the, when mortgage rates started to really tank and went down low, that was great, and we saw what's happened to the real estate market as a result. But... People like yourself and others are always saying, be careful about, um, you know, mounting personal debt. It's going to come back and bite you. And I think that's the, what's causing a great deal of consternation right now, isn't it? Is what, what that's, that's finally coming to, to, to fruition, and we're starting to see that. Not just mortgage debt, but, you know, car payments, uh, personal debt, credit cards, all this sort of stuff. Uh, we're being impacted by that, but, I mean, it's not as if we weren't being warned that this was going to happen.
3: Yeah, you're exactly right. And that warning's been coming for years. And I think what happens then is that because the warning's been coming for years, and especially the last couple of years, maybe we haven't been listening to that warning because we've been distracted by COVID. But the fact is that at some point, warnings uh, without being backed by action starts to get tuned out. And so I, I think that where the Bank of Canada has been trying to play nice and saying, you know, please please. Now they're saying, all right, we we tried the nice guy approach, you're not listening. So now we have no choice but to do the bad guy approach. And this is going to hurt. And it's going to hurt some people much more than it's going to hurt others. But the fact is that I I, I think that a lot of people don't really understand what it means to take on too much debt. Um, There was a Survey that was out yesterday from Manulife talking about one in five Canadians think that they're going to have to sell their home. But within that same survey, there was an acknowledgement that I think it was one out of two people don't understand what inflation and interest rates mean. And so it's very difficult then for the bank to give warnings to people about excessive indebtedness when people don't understand What that really means for their personal financial situation, just because you can borrow money doesn't mean you should borrow money and have the wherewithal to pay it back under all economic circumstances. And so again, I I think the Bank of Canada has done enough of trying to warn people, They, they now have to take action
0: they're always going to be looking now that we're into the situation Moshe, of, of okay give me some signs that maybe the worst is over and and obviously the you know that that centers especially around things like inflation and i know there were some experts quote unquote uh, that were saying last week that you know this this is as high as it's, it's going to start to subside inflation will start to subside and go down so this is all going to be short-term stuff but what we're hearing now is that uh <laughs> The CPI report simply says that, no, this is going to go on for the longest time. And, you know, we're, we're nowhere near the end of this right now, which is rather, as you say, uh, depressing reality. But it is the reality in situations like this, because we've always in the past haven't done that. To figure, it's only going to be for a little while, but we're going to be OK. Yeah, I, yeah I, weigh, I have too much debt, but they'll they'll knock rates down again and I'm going to be fine again. And uh, I guess the message that we got yesterday was, uh, no, uh, you're going to have to do something about it. You can't just hold your breath and this, expect this to go away
3: yeah inflation is exactly the example of kind of the pandora's box that you never wanted to open again right once Mm -hmm. you manage to get that inflation under control you never wanted to give it an opportunity to come back because once it comes back it gets embedded into people's head and like you you said a couple of minutes ago people start going in and they start driving hard bargains that rather than asking for that two percent wage increase they're now asking for ten percent and some of them are getting it but the fact is that once you get uh, rewarded with your outrageous claim, then it just means that the next claim that you're going to come back and ask for is another outrageous 10%, or you're even going to try and push the envelope and go for 15 And so to try and get back to 2%, and that's the way of things for three decades, becomes that much harder. And so uh, the Bank of Canada is, is now in a position where they, they can't allow that to happen. A- and so they're going to do everything that they can to try and keep this uh inflationary period as short as possible and like i said if they have to tip the economy into the uh, recession it's not like they haven't done that in the past and if they have to do it here to try and make a point and to try and get us back to that level-headedness that i keep saying uh they'll they'll do it and we should actually be thankful for it (laughs)
0: The book says, uh, when we start dealing with this, and of course, you know, all these stories we've heard over the last uh, three or four days, especially, have sent everybody over to Google to say, "What, what, what is this? What's what's happening to us? Uh, bear markets have three stages, a sharp down, reflexive rebound, and a drawn out fundamental downtrend. Uh, we're still on the first stage, I guess.
3: Yes. Yeah, for sure. Um, and and, and <laughs> maybe the next time that you and I talk again is going to be that we're, we're going to see, you know, markets rebound, and we're going to say, all right, that wasn't too bad, right? It's the same sort of thing, I guess, you know, within the medical community, right? That, you know, you see a a patient deteriorate uh, and then they have this period where they uh, see some improvement before they kind of deteriorate to their natural level. Uh, uh, The example that came to mind as I was saying that was uh, me going and seeing my eye doctor uh, and him talking about the idea that, you know, I, I wear glasses now. And he said that before you get to the bifocal stage, you're going to see some small improvement in your eyes temporarily. And you might think that, okay, that's the end of the glasses. But in fact, it's a sign of kind of the, the new normal that's to come uh once i get to that age so you know, it's the same sort of thing then with with this market then it, it's it's correction reflection and then it's reality
0: and everybody's impacted and all facets of this are impacted and you mentioned uh, bitcoin just a couple of minutes ago uh and and cryptocurrency in general uh d- does this shake the confidence that some people like pierre Polyev and others uh were, were trying to to tell us about here that this was the way of the future
3: I don't know that it's necessarily going to shake their confidence because their confidence was questionable from an economic standpoint to begin with, right? (laughs) The the business model for cryptocurrencies still remains weak and unproven. So for anybody who's getting in front of an open mic and saying, hey, this is the way of the future and this is what we should be doing, and uh, I would question what their motives are rather than what the soundness of their logic is so uh if they're working from flawed logic to begin with then they might be using this opportunity then to promote some crazy idea that this is even more reason why we should be using bitcoin but no the the business model is still in doubt and still unproven so if they're taking losses it's merely a reflection that the market is kind of realizing that that particular emperor still is not wearing clothes
0: so, how do we, as individuals, you know, the the person living on Elm Street in London or or on, how do we do? What do we do here? How do we respond? As you say, do we, you know? Do we just go and hunker down in the basement until this thing passes, or is there, or is there some positive action that we could be taking?
3: Well, for sure, there's there's some positive stuff here. I mean, remember, too, that this, too, shall pass, right? So, you know, we, we've had recessions before. It's not like we've never seen this. The recession usually comes around once a decade, give or take, and it, it passes. And so it, it is an element of hunker down, this storm will go by. But part of it is uh, learn from this particular opportunity, right? Try and find economies within your spending patterns. Try and figure out that if you are losing sleep, Uh, If you are having a hard time with this, what puts you in that position? It it is partly of our own doing. And if that's because of excessive indebtedness, then try and make sure that doesn't happen again. Buy a home within your means uh, or look at a rental option instead of buying. Or if you're worried about the value of your portfolio, look for value in shares Then I'm reminded of uh, some, some very famous financiers who use the idea that when everybody's stampeding for the exit, that's exactly the time when you should be running in. Uh, because that's when the great deals are found. And so for every stock that's falling, that means that there's a good buy opportunity there too. So there's lots of things that we can be doing.
0: can even the last time you and I talked about some of the stuff a week or so ago uh, saying well this, this doesn't impact me and I, I, I responded and I said yeah it does pension funds I mean a, a lot of different organizations that we may not even be fully aware of uh, live and die with this market and prices go up and down and, and we saw that happen in the 8 recession didn't we where a number of pension funds were decimated by what was going on there I, I'm not suggesting we're going down that road again but we do need to pay attention to this
3: for sure uh, but I, I think that that comes as part of a broader social awareness that we need to be aware of finances, right? I, I said a few minutes ago that you know in that Manulife survey there were, there were people saying that they don't understand interest rates and inflation rates. I, I've long pushed for the idea that uh, elementary school kids, uh, secondary school kids, should be forced to take courses in personal finance and to understand these sorts of ideas. Not being taught necessarily boring, dry economics, but the idea of what exactly does it mean when inflation goes to this level? Or what does it mean when interest rates go up? And you know, I, I know that doesn't solve the problem right now, but there are things that we can do, especially with the availability of the Internet, that there's all kinds of videos out there on YouTube that can explain what does this mean. Uh, and, and there are advisors out there who can tell you that, hey, they can look at the breakdown of your assets, your portfolio, your liabilities and say, all right, this is what you need to be doing right now to to hunker through this. And I, I think part of that is also having discussions at the the kitchen table with the family that, hey, bad times are coming uh we need to really consider you know is this the time the kids are going to go to camp or is this the summer they're going to stay home and those types of decisions uh can, can help mitigate some of the problems
0: Moshe always a pleasure thanks so much for spending some time with us again today and, and adding some clarity to, to a very troubling situation appreciate it